Hello, everyone, and thank you for joining us again on the PCICS podcast, the official podcast of the Pediatric Cardiac Intensive Care Society. My name is Sine Zablewski, and I'm a cardiac intensivist at the Medical University of South Carolina, and I'm also a member of the PCICS podcasting committee. Today, I have the opportunity to speak with Dr. Katie Cashin and Dr. Eva Chung. Dr. Cashin is a cardiac intensivist at the Children's Hospital of Michigan, where she is the medical director of the Cardiac Intensive Care Unit and an associate professor of pediatrics at Wayne State University. Dr. Chung is a cardiac intensivist and an assistant professor of pediatrics in the divisions of cardiology and critical care at New York Presbyterian Morgan Stanley Children's Hospital of Columbia University. They will be speaking to us today about multi-system inflammatory syndrome in children related to coronavirus disease 2019, also known as COVID-19 in the United States. And please note, before we start in full disclosure, this podcast is being recorded on July 16, 2020, and the landscape of the COVID-19 pandemic is rapidly changing. And the content of today's recording is reflective of what we understand thus far at this time point about multi-system inflammatory syndrome children and COVID-19 disease. Katie and Eva, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you. It's my pleasure. Maybe we can start our conversation by the two of you just telling me about your respective experiences with multi-system inflammatory syndrome in children. Sure. Um, this is Dr. Eva Chung, um, and uh, as Sinai mentioned, I'm from uh, New York Presbyterian, uh, which was the epicenter of this COVID-19 uh, pandemic in the U.S. Uh, for the month of March and April, we as a children's hospital had really put a lot of focus on uh, the, the surge of COVID-19 infections, particularly in adults. Uh, it, it was certainly true that we rarely saw children uh, in our ICUs. Uh, during the peak of it in, in March and April. Uh, Miss C, which we didn't know what that was at the time, uh, really came to light uh, by the end of April into early May when we had previously reached this kind of level of, of comfort almost that, that children were rarely affected by COVID-19. And we started seeing uh, a, just a, a surge of admissions of healthy children being admitted mainly with shock. Um, and, uh, you know, when you first see the first couple of cases, you're just, you, you just think that this is sepsis or, or, you know, just, you know, children, um, presenting with what you sort of know of. And then when you start to see uh, nine admissions in a weekend, um, you realize that, you know, it's probably something else, uh, entirely different. And, uh, that really kind of changed the game in our mindset, um, about, how children were affected by COVID-19, what this was, and, and really trying to understand this uh, quite early on. Um, so that was quite jarring uh, to, to really uh, go from one mindset about what COVID-19 meant to children uh, and then into another. Um, so really for the early parts of May, for the first two weeks, um, it, it, was, it was several admissions a day. Um, and uh, at that time, as I mentioned, many of them came to our ICU for vasoactive support and, and, and something that looked very different than what we were treating in adults uh, with ARDS and respiratory failure. Um, so I think that was the landscape which we were um, starting to see, um, Miss C. But I, I certainly welcome uh, Katie and would love to hear her experience about um, you know, how, how that looked like for them as well. 
So we were a little bit uh, very similar, but slightly different. Um, the epicenter in Michigan was in the Detroit area, and we're you know right in the middle of the city, our children's hospital. Um, the adult population, the number of cases peaked for us in, in early April. And we had between March and April quite a few kids. I mean, I think we ended up having about 20, which, you know, in the grand scheme of ICU admissions doesn't sound like a lot. But for us, we had a lot of um, sick adolescent um, adolescents with underlying asthma. So many of the respiratory patients uh, acted similar to the adults, thankfully, without as much uh, thrombosis and without as many other, you know, comorbidities. But early in in April, like in, I think like the second week of April was our first case. Um, we had, a, our first case was similar, was a child who had, that we thought had toxic shock, uh, who came and developed, you know, rash, some conjunctivitis, some other symptoms, and really the myocardial involvement seemed out of proportion to what we had seen. Uh, well, I mean, toxic shock, you can see some, you know, moderate to severe breast function, right? But this, the child acted different and it was a little bit unusual. We had sent the COVID PCR and it was negative. So, and then we had two kids in the same week that had very similar symptoms. So this was in, again, the middle of April where you know, even the the NHS hadn't released their statement yet, and the UK report wasn't out. Um, so I think for us, it was it's good that all the patients came to in that kind of period of time where it was the same clinician, so we could recognize this pattern. Um, and we, you know, as a as a critical care division, got together at our our weekly conference through Zoom and said, "There's something going on, and we need to." look at these patients and and decide if this is COVID-related or not. Um, so I think, again, for us, it, it was somewhat helpful that they, you know, three in a row came and it, it was outside of the realm and they all had, uh, you know, were pretty sick too. Again, we thought initially was toxic shock and one had, you know, Kawasaki-like features. And well, two of the three were uh, intubated and all of them were on inotropes. Um, so I think for us that it was somewhat helpful that they all came in a rash so that we could kind of put it together before we really knew much about this. Eva, you um, published a research letter in JAMA on June 18th that described New York City's initial experience with Missy. Do you mind um, just summarizing briefly for the listeners um, the, the the content of that letter? Oh, absolutely. Um, the content of the letter uh, to JAMA was uh, really to document our very early experience. Um, if you actually look at the dates of the 17 patients that we reported in this letter, um, the dates of it were from mid-April to really early May. Um, and as Katie mentioned before, that's, that's even before um, both the CDC and the New York State uh, Department of Health um, really released uh, the, the statements about the, the alert for this Missy syndrome. Um, similar to what Katie had just described, we had a pattern recognition of, of, of realizing that we had more admissions than you normally would think of for toxic shock or, you know, Kawasaki's and, and, and something else was really tying this to COVID. Um, so this report of 17 patients was really our hopes of getting out there um, just the patient characteristic and experience that we were seeing so early on 
um, because this was so novel and this was so new, um, that we felt it was really important um, to really kind of evaluate, even though it was a small number, um, what they looked like, who they were. Um, and uh, it was one of the first reports, number one, to say that these children were previously healthy children, um, that they had no comorbidities, which is not what we were seeing um, when it came to children uh, with active COVID-19 infection. Um, this was a very different story. So the majority of those 17 children didn't have any comorbidities. Um, and we really had hoped to also try to characterize the symptomatology of MIS-C as well, uh, really finding that fever, GI symptoms, rash, and shock um, were present at that time in about you know three quarters of the patients um, and, and really was the predominant features. Uh, so really, this was, uh, again, uh, an attempt to just give a give some some insight into how these patients were looking like when they when they presented uh, their inflammatory markers and looking in their laboratory tests was the other feature of this article um, to really show that things like um, high CRPs and um, and low lymphocyte counts um, it was something that could help clue us in um, in MIS-C um, but by then we had not really had the experience of treatment and treatment outcomes. Um, so this is really just an early, early experience uh, about Missy. And Katie and Eva, since the publication of that letter, the research letter, what new information and additional insight have you gained about the disease process, its clinical manifestations, and then also treatment and treatment outcomes? So I think, you know, since that um, letter, there's been a nice New England Journal article um, that was, is, I think there's three first uh, senior authors, but it's it's Adrian Randolph's article about Miss C, and um, that includes some of the patients. I, Eva, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think that includes most of the patients in New York, but a few of them that were in the previous report they they excluded. Right. They um they the New England Journal actually simultaneously put out two articles. Uh, one, the Adrian Randolph, uh, uh, the CDC COVID-19 uh, re- like registry task force investigators paper. Um, that's the one that you speak of, Katie. Uh, simultaneously, the New York State Department of Health um, also published um, the New York State experience uh, with uh, uh, MISI as well. And I believe the first paper um, ex- excluded any patients that were included in the second paper. Yeah, so this is a nice, I think, for anyone who uh, wants an overview of, um, you know, the timing, presentation of cases through May, the geographical distribution, the ages of the patients, and then the treatments that people have used. Um, I think this is a nice review for anyone. But, you know, I think that, you know, it's one thing to read about the (laughs) cases, and it's another thing to really see them. I think the you know really importantly is recognition. Um, so in when these cases again when we started we had to recognize that this was a syndrome and, and as Eva said in her report figure out which um, features were going to give you the you know most chance of recognize a patient that would develop the syndrome. So in our in my hospital we um, worked with the emergency department to develop a screening tool. So that they could identify, you know, too many patients, right? The goal is to capture all of the patients and then decide which patients are more likely to, you know, develop a severe syndrome or not. And so our, um, 
you know, ED developed a screening tool with multidisciplinary input from, you know, us in infectious disease and cardiology uh, and buy-in from administration to screen patients who had, you know, some constellation of symptoms. We decided patients who had um, 40 hours of fever, um, obviously toxic appearing patients, you're going to do your routine workup and evaluation. Non-toxic appearing patients who had 48 hours of fever and also, you know, we made a, a list of symptoms and they had to have two other symptoms. Um, those patients, which, you know, GI symptoms, conjunctivitis, rash, um, those patients, we they then would do, a, you know, blood work to look for inflammatory markers. And if, again, a, this is a screening tool, so the goal is to capture as many patients as we can and not miss one, one patient we miss see. And based on the laboratory values and the physical exam, that would kind of determine the next steps, whether you have a ICU evaluation and infectious disease or a cardiology evaluation. And I think we got that really going in the beginning of May and identifying the patients earlier and treating the patients earlier made a big difference. Again, I, I really believe that if we can treat the inflammatory symptoms sooner, we we are less likely to have the severe cardiac manifestations that we have seen in some of these sick kids. For us, mostly earlier cases had much more cardiac manifestations and were sicker. And I would I would agree with Katie about kind of um, the New England Journal articles being uh, really a, a major addition to the literature about understanding the C. Um, they they really were the largest case series to show us what the symptoms were and also to break down kind of exactly what Katie was saying that. Missy had um, not only a tendency to have presentations of fever, GI symptoms, and, and, and shock, um, and rash kind of probably more readily, um, but really to also break down, which I think is probably a major fear of Missy, um, is the cardiac involvement. Um, where, how much of that cardiac involvement was in the um, presentation of the patients with shock, um, you know, the, the sort of the feared uh, possible link in this kind of Kawasaki-like um, pathophysiology that this might share um, in terms of coronary aneurysms, which were described in the England experience um, as, as well. You know, we, we ourselves had one or two major uh, patients that had um, aneurysm-like dilatation of the coronary arteries that I am also convinced that because we were prone to a treatment um, have since receded since then. Um, so, the, you know, these Descriptions of these patients um, in these papers and, and, and as well as the, my JAMA article have um, really hopefully shed some light about what to expect, um, how they how they look, um, and certainly probably the closest to what we could say is sort of the natural history of this disease because it was so early on and we were all um, trying to figure out what treatment and whether or not treatment makes a difference. Um, I agree with Katie. I actually do think that early recognition and early treatment does make a difference. Um, our our second half of presentations of MIS-C um, in the later April into June times uh, resulted in a lot less ICU admissions, a lot less um, really overall just kind of um, acuity with these children. And um, I would like to believe it's because of organized recognition in a very similar way that Katie described. Um, and whether it's right or wrong and what the treatment is, being, you know, whether it's being effective, but um, instituting treatment, anti-inflammatory treatment early, um, I really do think makes a difference. 
know when you talk about your respective experiences with the sea, you know, we're really talking about this short frame of time of two, maybe three months. And in medicine and science, that's that's a really pretty rapid accumulation of knowledge and treatment development. You know, what do you feel like were the most um, instrumental factors and this, you know, relatively pretty fast evolution of of recognition, understanding a disease process, and disseminating knowledge. I think at, um, each center will be different in, you know, the resources that you have, the subspecialties that you have. And in our, in, you know, in Detroit, a big um, factor that really, I think, improved the care of these patients is that we, um, as a critical care and cardiac intensive care group, we have communicate, you know, the majority of the group is communicating pretty frequently about patient care issues. Uh, with these patients, uh, honestly, we were sometimes Zoom meeting, you know, almost every day to discuss the patients and what is the right thing to do for this patient, talk about the clinical situation, what has changed in the next day. I mean, again, our one of our first patients, we had three patients um, kind of in a row, and the you know the third patient had significant you know severely depressed myocardial function, and actually had a ventricular tachyarrhythmia and a cardiac arrest, and went on to ECMO. And so for that patient, you know we we this is a new disease entity. She was actually COVID PCR positive, so this patient we're trying to decide the best treatment in real time because the she's so sick and we want to do the right thing and make her better. So I think for in Detroit, a really key factor was, you know, everyone in the cardiac intensive care group and critical care group communicating with each other and understanding the clinical presentation and scenario so that we could all work to read and understand and try and devise the best treatment. You know, from there, the also the multidisciplinary um, input working together uh, to try to get the best care from the patient. I mean, we um, had, you know, meetings with infectious disease cardiology. I talked about our ER group. You know, our, our when our cardiac patients go on um, ECMO, so this child had severely depressed function, we care for them in the cardiac ICU. So, you know, even our cardiovascular surgeon cares and is interested and engaged in these discussions. So I really think it's a multidisciplinary um, input and was, was really important for us in developing our, our treatment guideline. Uh, I left out the nurses and RTs and, you know, everyone else who is really important to take care of these patients. And then, you know, finally buy-in and support from administration. We really struggled with testing uh, in Detroit, uh, PCR testing. You know, in the beginning of this, we were sending our samples still to the state health department, which could take a week to come back. So I, you know, PCR testing was a big struggle, and serology testing was an even bigger struggle. Um, so we, you know, getting multidisciplinary input, development of treatment, and then really that support from many different divisions that we need antibody testing to bring back to administration. I think that's it's really key in your hospital um, that everybody is on the same page to really do the best thing for the patient. Yeah, I absolutely agree with um, everything that Katie just said. Um, when you talk about what's the most important factor that, that drove how we studied and then decided on treatment, 
Um, unfortunately, necessity was one of them. I mean, uh, we we had to kind of learn the disease and also then learn to treat the disease all at the same time. Um, and that's a challenge that I, I, I don't think in, in my career that I thought I was, was going to see. Um, but uh, and, and not to mention then having to get information out there to not only the scientific and medical community, but also to parents and the general public. You know, that, that, was, that was a major, major challenge. This, the MISTI, um, really, uh, the, the learning and the education of it all needed to cross many, many, many lines. Um, but, you know, we're, we're a, a few months into this now, and, and, and there is more literature and there is more recognition of, of um, you know, what this disease looks like at the very least, if, if we don't know quite yet about optimal treatment and, and outcomes. Um, so the multidisciplinary aspect of it, I, I can't emphasize enough uh, in terms of what Katie also said, and so I won't repeat all of it. Um, I, I would emphasize that, like she said, each institution has their strengths and has their their own, um, you know, uh, people and specialties and, and infrastructure um, that uh, that certainly should be used in, in coordinating care from the sea, um, but also recognizing kind of where. Uh, weaknesses may lie, as Katie pointed out, in terms of like testing or other things. We were very fortunate to have PCR testing quite readily available in our hospital, but serology testing was only just coming to play. Um, and so we really worked very hard um, to make sure that, I mean, I think grad students were hand pipetting antibodies at that time because um, there was really no commercially available serology tests. And we really concentrated those resources on these children. Um, you know, when, when that resource is really scarce, uh, hopefully other institutions, uh, you know, may have, have grown since then in their abilities. I think the last thing I would add about that, aside from the multidisciplinary aspect of this, though, is that um, because it is multidisciplinary, it was quite helpful to have several point people within each of those disciplines who were kind of designated content experts or champions or however, you know, you use those words uh, in, in your institution. Um, but it really did help having um, a select few really, really get to know the disease. Um, myself as a cardiac intensivist, every day there would be an email across the same representatives of ID, rheumatology, cardiology, intensive care, and our general hospital assist team. And it was not only as part of kind of case recognition and, and, uh, and reporting, but we would bounce back and forth being like, you know, this, this kid's BNP is not as high. You know, what should we do with this one? Um, you know, I saw one last week that looked like this. And it, it provided some consistency um, for um, not only recognition, but also treatment. Uh, and that was really important because our institution sort of within itself developed experts of MIS-C um, that people could turn to, to um, really kind of ask questions and, and run things by. And that was really important. Yeah, I agree with that completely, um, Eva. If you are seeing this for the first time, which everyone will at some point, but you know, well into our our experience, there may be a you know consulting team who hasn't seen any of these patients and has some uh, you know reference or has been reading about adult COVID patients. So I think it's it's also really important that when you develop your treatment guideline or your diagnostic testing, that you disseminate that information, but also that you kind of are consistent. And if you're going to revise your practice, that you do it in a thoughtful way, thoughtful, critical way. Um, I say that because it's, you know, if you're having good outcomes, if you have 
started, you know, using some treatment process that's, that seems like it's working, then somebody comes and hasn't seen these patients in, you know, a month or a month and a half, and you have a very sick patient and someone is recommending something that may be discrepant with what you your practice has been. Um, and it's being extrapolated from an adult paper and adult therapy. I think you have to be very careful doing that. Uh, many of the kids, I mean, we've, that's what we've learned, right? That the pediatric patients are not the adult patients, that the, they act and look very different. And so some of the adult data, that's, that's what we do. We read, we interpret, we extrapolate, we decide if it's appropriate. But we have to be very cautious when we're talking about initiating a new treatment for something that we've had very good outcomes. Um, and, and that happened, you know, pretty frequently in the middle of this for us. And again, I think that's why having one person um, for each division or, you know, the someone who's the gatekeeper so you can really critically discuss and think about, you know, we don't want to be trying um, all these biologics that are used in the adults and these patients because we know, you know, with the way we've been practicing with our Again, each treatment plan, which may be different at your institution, you guys have reviewed that. You have agreed upon it. You have you know, looked at the safety profile and decided that this would be appropriate. Why are we trying to introduce an agent that was used in an adult population that may be harmful You know, in these pediatric patients? I think you have to be very careful that we're not just um, throwing the kitchen sink at patients when we have kind of already come up with a treatment plan. Uh, because most, uh, again, and I, I speak for Detroit, but we, you know, we have had some very sick children. We've had three children on ECMO, and you know, so far everyone has gotten better without significant, you know, or complications. And not every child has been followed, you know, outpatient long term. But even of the children who are very sick on ECMO, they have, you know, complete cardiac recovery, complete renal, hepatic, other organ systems that were involved. So. Again, why you need to be critical and revise your treatment based on your understanding and your knowledge, but we should be really careful when we're trying to take an adult therapy and apply it to the patients. And that sometimes happens when people haven't seen these patients before. Listening to your, um, you know, to to the two of you describe the last three months, I think it's really pretty incredible what your institutions have endured and experienced and then also accomplished. You know, you know, here we are, it's July. And at this point, you know, when you reflect back on your institutional and personal experience with Missy, how do you feel like this has impacted your your team? You know, whether it be how your team functions or what you've learned about your teams? I I, I think uh this whole experience of COVID-19, not just from the C alone, has, has really just brought, particularly I'm going to speak for about my critical care team, um, really closer than ever. It, it's really the closest we're going to say about going to any front line for really anything. Um, and uh, and you you really go through the trenches um, with people you trust and, and, um, and if anything, establish new relationships with, with people I'm not entirely sure you may have worked with before uh, in order to just really kind of get the job done and, um, um, and and do the best that we can to take care of these patients. And so looking at this now, several months later, there's a, an immense amount of camaraderie because we had to, to, to kind of not only get through it for our patient's sake, but also for ourselves. And when it came to specifically to Miss C, I'm not going to lie to you. I think the presentation of this for children, it, it was jarring. I think I mentioned it at the early of this podcast. It was jarring for us critical um, care folks. Like we were, 
we just spent months. Uh, we we were in we were a pediatric ICU that took care of adults for two months in our children's hospital, and call it just exhaustion or just mental exhaustion, physical exhaustion. We we kind of sort of just started to see the light about all of that when Missy really really peaked its head, and it, it was it was a little bit of a moral blow because you just stand there and say, you know, I thought children were supposed to be okay. What I would really like to emphasize on the other side of it, and Katie has said this already, children can do quite well, despite how sick they can get from Misty. And so living it at the time was very disheartening. Seeing it on the other side, as, as with all this work about multidisciplinary organization, prompt recognition, the research that people have been trying to put out there so that we can effectively recognize um, these patients to initiate treatment. Um, all of that really has, just, it's, it's, it's good to feel it pay off and see these children, despite how scary this was, do very well. Um, they can do very well. Uh, we've seen about maybe three quarters of these kids um, on follow-up and outpatient, and um, they are asymptomatic, even if they had myocardial um, depression, um, they recovered. Uh, as I mentioned, some with coronary aneurysms or dilatations that have recovered. Um, so it, it's really at least good to know on the other side that uh, they can really have such a positive outcome. Yeah, and I think that I completely agree. I think it the experience was really hard and scary. <laughs> I'll say scary, you know, because we we want to know the right thing to do. There, there are not many. I think you, you know, maybe in a different era, not the era that I trained or have been practicing in. Um, there's a, some uncertainty in everything that we do in critical care, but this was, there were a lot, there was a lot of uncertainty. Should we anticoagulate? Should we not? You know, any child with delirium, do they have some CNS vasculitis? I mean, there there was a lot of fear that since we didn't really in, understand this virus and all the effects that it could have, were we missing something? And were we doing the right thing? I mean, constantly that that reevaluation. So I think we learned as a team and that includes, you know, everyone who takes care of these patients to really depend on each other and support each other. In our unit, you know, many of the nurses got sick, many of the residents were sick very early on and um and some of our colleagues were sick and you know, some of our colleagues were very sick. So I think that we, meaning me and this age, we haven't really had that with other diseases for, in my lifetime, at least. You know, I remember watching the podcasts of the Italian or listening to the podcast from the Italian experience and hearing it, but not really, you know, knowing that it can be quite devastating to come to work and be thinking about, you know, one of your partners who is sick in an ICU. And I think that that's what, um, is hard here is that many of the parents of the kids, when the kids hear that they have COVID or COVID-related illness, they they think they're going to die because that's what they see on the news and their parents think they're going to die. And so, you know, for us, at least later into this experience, we were able to tell them like, you know, we've had some very sick kids, kids who are sicker than you, we're going to get, you're going to get better. We're going to do this things. You know, not not a false reassurance, but now we have more experience than we had before. So I can say we, you know, we're going to get them out of this. And that feeling that that their child is going to die because their, you know, mother has died or the aunt has died or, you know, this is real. And I think that part of it is is different for us than 
than other diseases. And so knowing our experience, I hope, will help other people. Counseling will help other people. I hope will help our patients, will help our colleagues that we're going to get through this. I don't know when we're going to get through this, but we're going to get through this. And that the kids, again, even the sickest kids, even our kids that, you know, one that arrested onto ECMO, the other two that were supported on ECMO have completely recovered. So I think that's a really important point to kind of give you hope when you're drowning in patients and want to make sure you're doing the right thing. Thanks so much for those comments. I think for those of us who are just uh, starting the initial, um, experiencing our initial wave, those are really powerful words to hear. You know, unfortunately, as Katie alluded, we don't really know when we're going to be done with all this. And knowing what you know and having had the experience that, that you have had, what do you what do you think are going to be the greatest challenges in the upcoming months? Um, I, one of the biggest things is really, I think we're seeing some of those challenges right now, right? Like we, in New York, I think there were times back a few months ago where we're not entirely sure we would, we would have seen today the way that today looks like. As I mentioned, Times Square was absolutely barren and, and, and you know, we, everybody was staying at home and, and we were running adult ICUs literally in our cafeteria. Um, so that's kind of what some of our country is or may get to see. Uh, and, and, and that's, that's a major challenge um, that we're already kind of already living. Um, you know, there, there are hopes that the country and these, and these medical systems that are, that are going to be overwhelmed um, can have some hope that if certain things are, are, are done right as far as social distancing and, and mask wearing, um, that there could be the other end of the curve like it was in New York City. Um, and so I, I you know, really uh, hope uh, for that for, uh, you know, kind of our colleagues around the country. Um, but really the other challenge is just the vigilance of it all. I mean, the, the, the parts of the country that saw that, like here in New York, uh, we're starting to open up. But, uh, you know, I think everybody's holding their breath a little bit uh, every day that goes by, um, certainly celebrating in our victories, but certainly um, having um, some caution about just what might happen in the future. Uh, so it's, it, I positively say in New York that it's the norm to walk around with, um, with a mask and, uh, um, you know, have respect for distance and, and things like that, which, uh, which is really kind of a, a major factor in allowing us to kind of get back to life. So I think that's a major challenge moving forward, uh, is, uh, maintaining that vigilance and, um, you know, until we really feel like this is over, which is we're not entirely sure when that will be. Yeah. I think the, I'm, I'm very worried for the winter months when we're, we're usually, I mean, we have a 48-bed unit with 12 dedicated cardiac ICU beds, but we're we're usually drowning in the winter and, you know, flu and RSV. Um, and, you know, even this past winter, I can think of a day where we didn't physically have a bed in the Metro Detroit area for a patient. Um, so I, I'm, I'm pretty worried that if we have high senses from other viral diseases like we know happens usually in the winter that we're going to be struggling to staff our unit, uh, which and I say staff and I mean mainly, you know, adequate nursing staff. I think for us in the adult side, the, the challenges were not a physical bed for the patient. We, you know, we increased the age of that we would accept patients. And the problem, again, my understanding was that our 
physical bed was not usually the issue. It was having a nurse to care for the patient in that bed. Um, and I don't see that, you know, has changed much in the last few months. So it, when the other infections that people come to the hospital for increase, I think we're, and if the COVID, uh, if COVID-19 peaks again, then we're in Michigan, at least we're going to, we're going to have a huge problem. And in the country, it seems to me, and this is not meant to be political statement that, um, that it's every state, you know, has to figure it out and um, not having an adequate kind of federal or even state distribution of patients and, and resources is, is what's going to be really challenging here. You know, as we wrap up our um, discussion, are there any main you know, takeaways that you would like to share, right, you know, as, as we conclude? Um, I think that I have probably three quick main takeaways just to bring this back to concentrate on Ms. C in particular. Um, I think I mentioned earlier in this that disease recognition was is a major part of this. And uh, in the timeline that it was here for us in New York City, uh, we had to learn uh, what the disease was very rapidly. Uh, for the rest of the country that may see Ms. C because of their respective surges of, of, of their locations um, in the U.S. or just across the world, uh, at least I think hopefully they can benefit from the research and the publications and the personal experiences uh, that other cities have gone through already. Uh, to and, and please, please, uh, those articles that were mentioned, uh, all, all of it uh, is helpful in just the first part of disease recognition. Um, the second quick point is to say that and emphasize what has already been said about just coordinated, multidisciplinary just, uh, just care, uh, no matter, again, what your strengths are in your institution. I would say that the, the absolute, uh, and if it's not available in your hospital, really are, um, you know, cardiology because of the cardiac manifestations of MISI, um, as well as uh, an access to an ICU. Um, if you're an institution that, that doesn't have readily access and these kids look like they're going in that direction or come in with very high inflammatory markers, just think early about um, just ICU-level care um, for, for these patients uh, and, and transfer if that's not within your institution's abilities. Um, but because that we've demonstrated that early recognition and support and treatment can make a difference in these children, um, I think that's absolutely um, really imperative. Um, but a multidisciplinary approach is, is really kind of what's needed to, uh, to really best take care of these patients. And then the last uh, real point that, that I certainly... Uh, would make uh, is that, you know, we, on the way from the garage to the children's hospital, um, every single day during these COVID times, uh, there was this sidewalk uh, art uh, that was, uh, that, that said um, that uh, uh, the, even in the darkest times, uh, the sun will shine on our healthcare heroes. And when you're just being bombarded with patient after patient and, um, and you may not believe uh, that that's true, uh, and I certainly sometimes did, didn't on, on those daily walks from the garage to the hospital, um, you know, know that hopefully um, for many places there's, there, there is sunshine on the other end and, and you will come through. So those are kind of just my three quick major points. And, you know, I think if you haven't um, been in the, if this hasn't hit you yet hard, I think try and prepare and plan and anticipate what you can. Um, a lot of the, the you know, PCICS lists or the emails that are going back and forth, I think, are very helpful. 
in the um, COVID-19 response that, um, you know, that was set up by the Boston Group. That's another email listserv that, that people share um, their guidelines through. I think try and develop for your own place the guidelines that you can anticipate, both diagnostic and treatment, you know, planning. Ultimately, when you have a patient, you're going to end up revising and realize your best plans don't always work. But if you can anticipate that before you're really drowning in patients, I, I think that's very helpful. Um, codes, you know, we didn't talk as much about the practical part here, but I think there's once you you can plan for the codes, you can plan for, um, you know, getting your PPE on quickly, but even a rest, you know, I've patient who becomes hypoxic and you have to rush into the room. It takes time and it's hard to hear and there's a lot of challenges for, you know, people who have been in a resuscitation situation. So I think you have try and develop with your nurses, RTs, um, a code plan. The AHA released a, an algorithm and each place has to develop what's best for them, but not having everyone rush in and potentially exposing the, the staff was really important, but still getting there to care for the child. Um, so I think those trying to anticipate and plan for what you can is really important. I said it before, but developing your treatment guideline and revising it, but not necessarily, um, you know, trying a lot of things that may or may not have been tried um, for these patients who we have seen get better with treatments that have been used in the pediatric population in the past. And then, um, you know, Eva ended with a little nice thing. I feel the same that. We got into this because we, we care about children, and even with these sick children, the majority of them are getting better. Um, and really, you know, we're, we're lucky, despite um, what we're seeing in the world. I think we're lucky to be uh, pediatric intensivists. I think we're lucky to be cardiac intensivists, and, we're, you know, we're really lucky that we can take care of these sickest patients and, and they get better because it has got to be extremely demoralizing to be on the adult side. Um, and it's demoralizing to see it every day. So just, you know, think of your one patient who you, you really weren't sure if they were going to survive and they survived. And, you know, use that to help get you through the patients that you're really struggling with and know that most of them do. And like I said, we've had some very sick patients and all have survived. So we we hold on to that at 2 in the morning when we're struggling to you know, ventilate or support a child who's, you know, really, really looking sick. Katie and Eva, um, I just really want to thank you for taking the time to speak with me about uh, Missy and also for providing your, your perspective, your insight, very importantly, also hope. Um, we very much enjoyed having you on our podcast. And I think we could probably continue this conversation for many, many more minutes, probably even <laughs> hours. But in the interest of time, I think we'll have to conclude. To all our listeners, thank you for listening to the PCICS podcast. Please don't forget to follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. And please subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Visit our website where you can find more information about how to become a member and enjoy updated information on educational resources, meetings, job listings, and much more. 
The song I Don't Know by Grace was used under a Creative Commons 3.0 attribution license.